That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, as Republicans and GOP media are encouraging Americans not to get vaccinated and just, just go out there and die for your party, right? Something very different just happened in France, and I thought this was going to happen, and that is that the French president, Emmanuel Macron, announced new health rules. Now, France right now is hosting the Cannes Film Festival, and it was... Uh, one of the first, you know, major events in Europe where, well, maybe in France, where, where they absolutely required proof of vaccination to get in. But con is like one of those things where if you're going to con, you're rich to begin with in all probability. I mean, the, in, unless you're one of the poor filmmakers, it's like you know, a lot of the people who go to con are, you know, it's like you come flying on your private jet. Of course, they're vaccinated and they're not idiots. They're not Republicans. Now, the European Union has come up with what they refer to as the digital COVID certificate. And, you know, pops up on your smartphone and you can get it two ways. One, you can get it by being vaccinated. Two, you can get it by having a negative COVID test, but then it expires after a week or two. But it'll get you into an event. It'll get you into a restaurant. It'll get you into, you know, whatever you want to into con. If you've been tested negative within the previous, uh, I frankly don't know the period of time. I know it's a matter of weeks before the, the certificate expires. But what Macron announced yesterday was that you may not go into any cultural venues like museums, theaters, movie theaters, concert halls. You may not go into any of those places starting July 21st without your digital certificate, your vaccine passport. And starting on August 1st, in what's that, two weeks, you have to have this pass in order to get into a restaurant, a cafe, a coffee shop, a retail store, on a train, on a plane, or basically in any kind of public place that is regulated by the government you know, where the government has any say in, in their ability to interact with the public, which is pretty much all of them. You get this QR code. And it, so the question that I'm asking, is it possible that what I'm asserting that the Republican Party actually has decided that letting more people die will work to their advantage because if a lot of people start dying and filling up hospitals, the economy will slow down. If the economy slows down, that hurts the party in power. The party right now that holds the White House, the Senate, and the House is the Democratic Party, and therefore it'll hurt the Democratic Party and Republicans will get elected. So that, you know, that was my premise. I think it dovetails nicely with this question of why can't we do what France is doing? The EU digital passport is not rocket science. You've got, I mean, similar things have been rolled out in New York and California already. I think in New York they call it the Empire Pass. It's the Empire State. So, you know, and multiple states are working on this. You've got Clear, the company, if, you, if you've traveled through an airport in the last couple of years, you've probably noticed these little Clear stations where you go up and, and put your, you just put your fingerprint, you know, a handprint basically on their machine 
it, it and it recognizes you and it takes your picture and recognizes you and uh, boom they they you jump the entire line get you know go right straight to, onto the plane or into the into the gate area you know or into the the terminal area to head to the plane so clear is coming out and they've now gone private or public by the way this, this company just went public a, a month or so ago they're coming out with a digital vaccine passport essentially it's not like we lack the technology. It's not like we're not smart enough to do it. It's not like our companies can't do it. Microsoft said that they were going to roll one out months ago. I'm not sure if they ever did. I think maybe they got, you know, when, when the Republican Party decided to make it political, they kind of backed off. You've got six or seven states now that have made it illegal to require vaccine passports in public schools. And 23 states that have legislation pending, 12 of them it's passed, to make it illegal for stores to require a vaccine passport to get in. I mean, good luck enforcing that, right? This is, uh, but yeah, you because know, it's, it's simply an extension of no shirt, no shoes, no service. We reserve the right to refuse service to anybody based on whether they have the possibility or probability of spreading a deadly disease. But here we are. So there's that. that. This is happening in Europe. They're getting their act together. They're saying, okay, enough. We don't want any more people to die. Here in the United States, the Biden administration is doing their best. They vaccinated, you know, they, they, we finally hit that 70% that target of people over 18. But that's still only about 50, I think around 53, 54% of Americans are now, you know, vaccinated or have their first shot. Fully vaccinated, we're below 50%, if my memory is correct. We're floating in that territory. We still have a long way to go. And what is slowing it down? What is blocking this? What is preventing people like Louise and I from showing up in a local restaurant? It's that I don't know that the guy sitting next to me without a mask isn't some mask hole, some Trump Trumplican. Who, who just got infected with COVID and is in his most contagious state, but doesn't yet realize he's sick. He may just have a little tickle in the back of his throat for a day or two until he ends up in the ICU. And he's breathing all over me or breathing upwind of me. I really think vaccine passports are absolutely necessary if we're going to put our economy back together and that we have to vaccinate more Americans. This is very straightforward stuff. So there's that. Then we also have now these Texas Democratic lawmakers who left the state. They said, okay, you know, you, you want to pass a law making it harder for black people and brown people to vote. And by the way, it's not just black and brown people that the Republicans are specifically targeting with this law. And it's not just Texas. Texas is like, you know, the 10th or 12th or 14th Republican state to roll out one of these laws. Georgia was one of the first, and it caused national outrage. It's why Major League Baseball is playing their game in Colorado this week rather than in Atlanta. It's because of the Georgia law. They're also targeting low-income people, young people, and people over 65 who vote, who tend to vote, you know, for Social Security and Medicare. And that's why, you know, the over 65 thing, that's why in Texas, your, ID, your driver's license has to be current. Well, what if you're 80 years old and you don't drive anymore? Sorry, you can't vote. You can use a, a shooter's license. You can use your concealed carry permit in Texas to vote. But you can't use the ID from a state university that, by the way, does check your citizenship. It's a state-issued ID, but no, no, you can't use that. Why? Because young people use those. Young people right now, this, this generation, of, this millennial generation coming up, are overwhelmingly voting Democratic. And many of them, you know, are far more progressive than your mainstream Democrats. In fact, I'd say probably the majority of them. They're, they're more like I am, you know. They're what, you know, we've called over the last six or eight years Berniecrats. Although, you know, that mantle goes way beyond Bernie Sanders, now, which is exactly what Bernie wanted. He has become the, the mainstream. Isn't that, isn't that cool? So the Texas legislators got on two chartered planes and flew to Washington, D.C. They're going to be there. There's 50 of them. 
and they're going to be there until uh, August when this uh, special session that Greg Abbott has called it expires, August 7th. And then they're going to fly back to Texas, and Greg Abbott, the governor of the Republican governor of Texas, says when they return, he's going to arrest them. Now, this is, keep in mind, this is the same guy who put Crystal Mason, a young black woman who had gotten out of jail and didn't know that she wasn't eligible to vote, went to her polling place. They said, you're not on the list. And the polling person said, here's a provisional ballot, and we'll check your eligibility. She filled out the provisional ballot. They checked her eligibility, found that indeed she wasn't eligible to vote, and they never counted her vote. Crystal Mason was sentenced to five years in prison. She's serving her sentence right now. And then you've got, in fact, I contributed, I think, $100 to his bail fund. Hervis Rogers is his name, down in Texas. Same deal. He was a, an ex-felon, and he thought he could vote, and he couldn't. And here's the kicker. In 2007, the Texas House and Senate passed a law that would have, quote, required the Texas Department of Criminal Justice to provide written notification to discharged prisoners regarding their lack of voter eligibility, right? In other words, tell people when they get out of jail, by the way, you can't vote. They passed a law in 2007 requiring that. That law was vetoed by Rick Perry, who was the governor at the time. <laughs> we don't want to tell the prisoners they can't vote. Are you kidding? We'd much rather rearrest them and make an example out of them for any black person or person of color who wants to vote. Because they're not going after white people for voting in Texas. They're going after black people. So what do we do with this? You know, I'm very hopeful that these 50 Texas legislators are going to bring a moral force with them. Now, you've also got Moral Mondays, Reverend Barber. you got a bunch of people who are pushing really, really hard. Drill a hole in that filibuster, blow up that filibuster, do whatever it takes to pass before the people act. back. Donna in Wheaton, Illinois. Hey, Donna, what's on your mind today? Hi. Uh, well, I just got a Facebook posting from my cousin in England about how the Delta virus has ripped through his family, and I wanted to share those details as succinctly as I can for your listeners. The reason he has posted this is that apparently on Monday, Boris Johnson is lifting the restrictions in England. Yeah, July 17th. Does that sound familiar? Okay. So, first of all, on around June 15th, his daughter, who's in elementary school, came home and tested positive for the virus. She apparently got it from playing outdoors with her friends because she was on remote learning because so many of the teachers were out of school. Then his wife, who had both Pfizer shots, got a very heavy cold, tightness in her chest, went for a test, tested positive. Eight days later, his two boys tested positive, and five days after that, he got it, and he got the deluxe version. He had hallucinations, high fever, the whole thing. And he also, like his wife, had had the, the Pfizer, both shots, and he is convinced that it was the vaccine that kept him out of the hospital because he had such a severe case. And he is warning people that on Monday when these restrictions are lifted, you know, people are going to be going back to the pubs. They're already flocking, you know, all over the place on vacation. And he's saying, be careful, because if this is how seriously he was affected after the Pfizer shots, he... You know, I mean, we already lost one person in the family a year ago or so when the virus first broke out. But he said this Delta thing is is so transmissible that even outside, even among children, all those rules that we had in our heads about what, you know, how you weren't likely to get this and that. And you can go maskless if you've been vaccinated. You can get the Delta variant literally by walking by someone who is simply breathing. Just yeah. simply walking by them, you know, which is a huge difference from the even the alpha variant, which was twice as transmissible yeah. as the original COVID. And this and is out of doors. Yeah. It's time for us all to start being very, very careful, Donna. And uh, that's a cautionary tale. And 
And I think we're going to start seeing a lot of those kind of cautionary tales, particularly in these areas. I mean, right now, this variant here in, in Oregon, it doesn't appear like it's hit us yet. I mean, we're still around 100 people a day for the entire state, and all the people in the hospitals are unvaccinated. But yeah, it, Illinois in, is doing relatively well. I mean, we're not in the top 10 states for vaccination. But yeah. you get lulled into this false sense of security because you think, okay, I'm vaccinated, I'm fine. And <laughs> it isn't so, you know. Yeah, it'll still kick your ass. It, it's still a very, very dangerous disease. It's just, you know, the vaccine basically prevents you from dying. But this is not a disease that anybody should be wanting to get. And I just like, you know, why are the Republicans promoting this disease? It's just, I can't come up with any other reason than that it's an election strategy. Donna, I got to run, but thank you for the call. That was uh, a tough one. Uh, Greg Abbott says he's going to arrest these people when they return. That's going to be that's going to make for some very interesting political theater. I'm kind of curious about all that. And uh, by the way, Hervis Rogers, we did raise the hundred thousand dollars for his bail. Hundred thousand dollar bail. He was not informed when he left prison that he couldn't vote because Rick Perry vetoed a law that would require the Texas Department of Corrections to inform people. Why would you veto a law like that? I mean, seriously, think about this for a minute. Why would a Republican governor veto a law telling felons as they get out of jail, or now ex-felons, as they get out of jail, by the way, you can't vote for the, you know, in this state until your parole is over, your probation is over. Why would he veto a law like that? Because they want to make examples of people. They sent a black woman to prison for five years, Crystal Mason, for voting when, you know, after, while she was still on probation. And her vote didn't even get counted. Hervis Rogers, he was the last guy in line. He, was, he got national attention because he stood in line for six hours to vote. And he voted just an hour before he had to go to his second job. He worked, this guy works two jobs. He's been sitting in jail for a couple of weeks. While a bunch of people out there on GoFundMe are trying to raise, you know, $100,000 to bail him out of jail. And like I said, I, you know, I kicked in a hundred bucks. I thought this, this, this is such an injustice, but it shouldn't be. They shouldn't have to be doing GoFundMes. By the way, Ken Paxton, the guy who's prosecuting Mr. Rogers, Ken Paxton, the attorney general for the state of Texas, six years ago was indicted for fraud securities fraud. He's, he has an open indictment. He's been charged with a felony for six years. It has not yet gone to trial. He's essentially out on bail. The attorney general of the state of Texas, Ken Paxton, the, the fraud charge, quote, alleges that he, quote, persuaded investors to buy stock in a technology firm without disclosing that he would be compensated for it. He faces 99 years in jail if he's convicted. He's also under FBI investigation for, quote, using his office to benefit a wealthy donor. Former senior aides to Paxton alleged, quote, Austin real estate developer Nate Paul helped Paxton remodel his house and gave a job to a woman with whom Paxton allegedly had an affair. This is the guy who's like the great moral center of Texas. This is the guy who's prosecuting these people. This is the guy who's going to prosecute these Texas legislators when they fly home and send them to and keep them in jail? Ken Paxton, really? The guy who had, had an affair and, and then, and, you know, and then basically got out of it, you know, helped his, helped his buddies, his, 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 his real estate developer, helped, helps this guy out, I mean, really? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Real estate developer Nate Paul helped Paxton remodel his house and gave a job to a woman with whom Paxton had an affair. Really? Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals 
from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And uh, welcome to Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the crash of 2016. This is one of the very last chapters. It's titled Green Revolution. Just as America now faces an unsustainable thirst for energy, so too was Germany faced with a power crisis in the late 1990s. Growing demands for electricity collided with the reality that the country has no oil reserves and a strong bias among its people against building nuclear power plants in the wake of the nearby Chernobyl meltdown. Yet the government knew that the country needed the electricity, equivalent of at least one or two new nuclear power plants over the next decade. So how to generate that much electricity without nuclear power? In 1999, progressives in Germany passed the 100,000 Roofs Program which mandated the banks had to provide low-interest 10-year loans to homeowners sufficient for them to put solar panels on their roofs. They then passed the Renewable Energy Law and integrated the 100,000 Roofs program into it in 2004. The Renewable Energy Law, REL, mandated that for the next 10 years, the power company had to buy power back from those homeowners at a level substantially above the going rate so that the homeowner's income from the solar panels would equal their loan payments on the panels and would also represent the actual cost to the power company to generate that amount of power by building a new nuclear power plant. At the end of the 10 years, the power company gets to buy solar power at its regular rate, and it now has a new source of power without having to pay and maintain and eventually dismantle a nuclear reactor. In fact, while the reactor would have a 20 to 30 year lifespan, the solar panels typically last 50 years. For the homeowners, it was a no-brainer. They were getting low-interest loans from banks for the solar panels, and the power companies were paying for the power generated from those panels at a higher rate, uh, high enough to pay off the loans. It was like getting solar power panels for free. If anything, the government underestimated how rapidly Germans would embrace the program, and thus how quickly power would be produced by the program. By 2007, Germany accounted for about half the entire world's solar market. Just that one year, 2007 saw 1,300 megawatts, and a megawatt is a million watts, 1,300 megawatts of solar generating capacity brought online just across Germany. For comparison, consider the average generating capacity of each of the last five nuclear power plants brought online in the United States. That capacity is 1,100 megawatts. So Germany had 1,300 megawatts just in 2007 added. In 2008, Germany added 2,000 megawatts of solar power to their grid, like two nukes, and in 2009, homeowners and businesses put onto their roofs enough solar panels to glean an additional 2,500 megawatts. Although the goal for the first decade of this century was to generate around 3,000 megawatts, eliminating the need to build two new nuclear power plants, the simple no-risk program had instead added over 8,000 megawatts of power, roughly eight nuclear power plants. And because the generation sources were scattered across the country, there was no need to run new high-tension power lines from central generating stations, making it more efficient and less expensive. Meanwhile, as dozens of German companies got into the business of manufacturing and installing solar power systems, 
The cost dropped by more than half between 1997 and 2007 and continues to plummet. The Germans expect that by 2050, more than a quarter of all their electricity will come from solar. It's now just over 1%. Now, I wrote this book two and a half years ago. Germany this summer produced 100% of their electricity this way. That's how rapidly this has changed just in the last three years. It's really remarkable. Adding to the roughly 12.5% of all German energy currently produced by renewable sources, mostly hydro, but also wind, biomass, and geothermal. The solar panel program has been so successful that the German government is now thinking that it's time to back off and leave this to the marketplace, which they've largely done. And it's not just leaving it to the marketplace. They had to reinvent their grid. There's to be a smart grid to handle all the added electricity that all these solar panels were producing. They have too much electricity now in Germany. Germany is now considering incentives to its world-famous domestic auto industry to manufacture flex-fuel plug-in hybrid automobiles that can get over 500 miles per gallon of strategic gasoline boosted by domestically produced rooftop solar with existing technology. Meanwhile, Denmark has invested billions in having more than half of its entire auto fleet using only electricity by 2030. And China is no slouch when it comes to renewable energy. Although the Chinese continue to bring another dirty coal-fired power plant online about once a week, they surpassed every other nation in the world in 2010 in direct investment in the production of solar and wind power. As the Los Angeles Times reported in March of 2010, U.S. clean energy investments hit $18 billion last year. A report from the Pew Charitable Trust said a little more than half the Chinese total of $34 billion. Five years ago, Chinese investments in clean energy totaled just $2.5 billion. The United States also slipped behind 10 other countries, including Canada and Mexico, in clean energy investments as a share of the national economy. The Pew report pointed to another factor constraining U.S. competitiveness, a lack of national mandates for renewable energy production or a surcharge on greenhouse gas emissions that would make fossil fuels more expensive. The ultimate power to the people is for homes to have their own solar roofs no longer needing power lines from distant power plants owned by big transnational corporations. The crash of 2016. I'll be back to your calls in a few minutes, but I wanted to talk about uh, big fossil fuel, big oil, big coal, big gas. There's Bernie actually uh, tweeted something over the weekend that I thought was absolutely brilliant and just summarized this very, very effectively. Uh, Bernie Sanders, he, he tweeted, fire NATOs in Northern California. I don't know if you saw the video, but it was, it was a, uh, a literally a tornado made out of flames from a, from a forest fire that had engulfed a, a barn in, in California. So anyhow, uh, back to his tweet. Fire NATOs in Northern California, ocean fires in the Gulf of Mexico, Subway waterfalls in New York City, a heat dome in the Northwest melting power cables, killing hundreds and frying marine mammals. I have been told that combating climate change is expensive, writes Senator Sanders. And then he asked the question, compared to what? And I think that's a really important question. We are not quantifying the costs of these things. I guarantee you that... If the Democrats had been in favor of keeping the, the uh, fossil fuels burning and the Republicans were concerned about the planet melting down, that they would be out there with their, with their well-paid bean counters measuring the cost, quantifying the cost, of every single burned down home, every single, you know, what, how much is a tree worth, every single tree that has been destroyed in a forest fire, um, what is it going to cost to rebuild the roads and the infrastructure? I mean, they, they would be telling us right now, oh, well, we just hit another trillion dollars worth of expenses from global warming. Uh, that was a $300 billion fire there. And that fire over there, that was a $20 billion fire. And, you know, and, and, and it would be pounded into us on a daily basis how much global warming was costing. Because that's what Republicans are all about, is cost. But instead... What they're really all about right now is how much money is the fossil fuel industry making and how much of that are they sharing with the GOP. And those numbers are, shall we say, striking. 
I mean, we even now we have Lauren Boebert at CPAC over the weekend going, you know, we don't need your government. We don't need no welfare. We don't. This is a woman who was once on welfare. Um, right. Yeah, we don't need we don't need no government. But don't regulate the fossil fuel industry. Don't raise their taxes. Don't do any of that stuff. I mean, the simple reality is in Australia, the richest person in Australia is a coal baron. And she's metaphorically in bed with Rupert Murdoch and his right-wing newspapers. And has for years been promoting this idea that global warming is a scam. And trying to stop anything to, to, to get the nation off coal. Here in the United States, you, know, you had the Koch brothers. So their father made his fortune in oil with Joe Stalin. Brought the fortune back to, back to Kansas. And uh, they continued that fine tradition although they've diversified into other things, and they've built this along with other billionaires, some of them fossil fuel billionaires, many of them not, but they've built this uh, basically uh, shadow government, this, this right-wing network that has more offices, more employees, and a larger budget than the Republican Party. It has become the tail that wags the Republican Party. Nobody ever talks about it, but it's there. There's a state policy network in every single one of the states. You got ALEC at the federal level and all this stuff. And, and for years, they have been devoting so much of their effort and so much of their time to blocking any efforts to stop the carbon pollution of our planet, which is now killing us. We had over 100 people here in Oregon die from this three-day heat wave. They had a couple of hundred people in Washington State. They had over 500 up in, in British Columbia. It's happening now down in, in uh, California, particularly Eastern California, Nevada, uh, Colorado, Utah. This dome is now, has, a new one has formed. And it looks like one of the things that's causing these heat domes is that the soil underneath has dried out to the point where it's not evaporating normal levels of moisture that would normally cool down the air. Which means that right down the road, you've got massive forest fires. And in fact, that's what's going on right here. We've got a huge forest fire going on in Southern Oregon that yesterday shut down the power from the Bonneville Dam here on the Columbia River that goes all the way to Northern California. We are, we are literally supplying electricity to people 600 miles south of us in Northern California, and they just lost their electricity, or at least they lost our part of it. And so Governor Newsom is now saying, well, you know, prepare for, you know, cut, cut your electricity uses, please, by 15%. And if you don't, we're going to have rolling blackouts. What do we do about this? Who do we hold accountable for this? How do we change this? Will we make this, will we make it through this? I have a couple of friends who, uh, who are quite knowledgeable about this. I, I just, uh, I don't want to name them because we're having kind of conversations in the back channel, uh, who are just, I mean, very, very, very well-informed people in this field who are very concerned that if we don't get this under control in the next couple of years, not the next decade or two decades or three decades, but the next couple of years, that we are now at the edge of a civilization ending tipping point. And climate change has already passed a whole bunch of tipping points. The Arctic ice tipping point, the albedo tipping point, the, I mean, it's just a bunch. Of, we're not going back on those things. But when the great big one comes, or if a whole bunch of small ones reaches the point where there is no way back, you know, we don't know how far away we are from that. But I'm, I'm starting to think, hey, you know, as a civilization, we should be building a giant pyramid like Giza, only twice as large, make it out of granite so it will last for tens of thousands of years rather than sandstone. And deep down inside it, in a way that is accessible but difficult, deep down inside it, bury the story of how we screwed up the planet and made ourselves, you know, destroyed our own civilization. Because I, I, I personally believe that no matter how bad it gets, some humans will make it through. I, I don't think that we're gonna get to another Permian kind of event.
But we're already seeing civilization, well, not civilizations, but countries collapsing as a consequence of this. This was the basis of the Arab Spring in, you know, when that uh, street vendor in Tunisia set himself on fire. It was because in the northern part of Tunisia, as, it ha as happened in Syria, as happened in Libya, as happened in Egypt, in the northern part of Tunisia, the desert had come south in, in Syria. It was over 100 miles uh, that it had moved over the previous decade. The desert had come south. It had wiped out a bunch of farms. The price of wheat went up. So pita bread was going through the roof, and this vendor was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, it's, it's, the rent's too damn high, basically. You know, it was that kind of thing. At what point does it reach the point of no return? Honestly, nobody knows right now, but we're, we're playing with something that's extraordinarily dangerous, and we still have this entire political party, the Republican Party, the only political party of any developed nation on Earth that continues to claim that climate change is a hoax and that we need to keep on burning fossil fuels because don't you know plants love carbon dioxide? And they are sticking with that, that set of lies because you've got fossil fuel billionaires who own them who have a network that's larger than the GOP. Now, meanwhile, the rest of the world is actually starting to get serious about doing something. Between 20, this is from the Good News Roundup over on Daily Coast, which I thought was just great. Uh, between 2014 and 2020, $160 billion worth of Chinese-backed coal-fired coal power plants have been announced. And more than 65 billion of them have now been shelved, mothballed, or canceled. In uh, June, last month, the European Parliament approved a landmark law to make the European Union's greenhouse gas emission targets legally binding. Legally binding. Everything else is, you know, right now here in the United States, everything is just like, oh, these are goals, these are aspirational, these are targets. No, legally binding. Uh, the bill sets targets to reduce EU emissions by 55% by 2030. That's nine years from now cut them by more than half and eliminate net emissions by 2050. In South Korea, the, the three largest insurance companies said that they will no longer provide coverage, new coverage for uh, coal power plants uh, for construction or operation. Hyundai Marine and Fire Insurance and HANA Insurance. And in Bangladesh, they just said that they're scrapping 10 coal-fired power plants. Bangladesh, of course, is experiencing temperatures in some cities, uh, you know, in the 120s, where people are dying, there's literally nothing you can do except air conditioning. You can pour water on people, and it doesn't save them. What do we do? I, I you know, other than, I, you know, obviously step one, wake the American people up. We're all working on that step, and the weather is helping. Step two, do everything you can to get Republicans out of office. Adam in Youngstown, Ohio. Hey, Adam, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I was going to ask you, in regards to climate change, is there anything in the infrastructure bill that directly addresses it? Yes. In fact, the essence of the infrastructure bill, they no longer use the phrase Green New Deal because it's been so politicized by, by Toxic, Republicans. Yeah. yeah. But it is, a, it is essentially the Green New Deal. It is, you know, we are going to build new infrastructure, and the new infrastructure we are going to build is going to be infrastructure that is going to reduce our carbon footprint over time. Obviously, there'll be an increase in the construction of it, but, you know, 500,000 electric charging stations, subsidizing solar and wind power at the level of communities and states all across the country. Just, you know, major stuff that is designed to reduce our carbon footprint. That's that. That is, is there anything, the major rationale. I'm for sorry. It, frankly. Go ahead. Is there is there anything about what our Gulf region? We just got hit with another hurricane in Florida. Our Gulf region's getting swamped. There's flooding everywhere, which is really stressing our lumber and our piping and everything else. Yeah. Is there anything in that bill that has to do with drainage? and the pipeline. We could get a pipeline and pump that water out west where it's <laughs> desperately needed. Yeah, yeah, you'd have a tough time getting it over the Rockies, but uh, yeah. Uh, to the best of my yeah. knowledge, you know, there's no water pipelines, but there are parts of that bill that do address some of the water problems that are happening out west. I'm not an expert on this, and I can't, you know, cite you chapter and verse, but but um, it's it's pretty comprehensive stuff, and I'm I'm, you know, hopeful that that they can pass this. So this is 
and, and that they will. They'll do it through reconciliation. Adam, thank you for the call. Rob in New York City. Hey, Rob, what's up? Hi, so I was wanting to talk to you about what you were saying about climate change because I agree with everything that you said, 100%. But I think that especially, and since you just mentioned Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, they're, they're also, they're two of the, the, the largest recipients of the Democratic Party of, of money from big oil and big pharma. And I think, you, you mentioned it, but I think it's true. I think that we need to start calling out Democrats for the same thing, because especially after that phone call that just got exposed a, a week or two ago about Joe Manchin telling his billionaire donors, you know, get me this thing and I'll get them off of your back about the, the filibuster or the raising right. the taxes or something like that. And this is a problem because it's not just a dumb, it's not just a problem. It's an institutional problem. It doesn't it crosses the aisle, I think. Yeah, I agree. And, and I have not been reluctant to point that out and to hope out loud that some of these Democrats who are blocking a progressive agenda or just a rational agenda face a primary challenge. I, I, you know, I, I think that's pretty straightforward stuff. Rob, thanks for the call. Brian in Anaheim, California. Hey, Brian, what's up? Hey, Tom. Let me just uh, acknowledge really quick all the other callers. This show would not be what it is without not just you and your staff, but your callers as well. So yeah. let me just say thank you from the bottom of my heart to all of those who participate in this program. I know I'm not alone when I say this show makes my life better. It truly does. But, well, thank you. And um, I I'll, echo your appreciation for the people who call into this program, including yourself, Brian. So what's up? Thank you. Well, uh, well the reason I called is it, it drives me absolutely nuts that fossil fuel companies can poison our atmosphere with our heart's content for free. You made a whole documentary short about this with Leo DiCaprio called mm -hmm. Carbon, which I set up a URL to take everybody directly to at carbonkills.info. Everyone listening should there's watch a, it. There's another one on that we did, media. Brian, that I think is even better. It's called Last Hours. If you uh, go to YouTube and yeah, plug his name, my name, and Last Hours in, it'll pop right up. Absolutely. Absolutely. But my question to you is, can a price on carbon be put into a budget reconciliation bill? And if so, wouldn't that be something well worth calling our representatives and asking them to support? Maybe not just a tax, but also a financial incentive to move their operations more towards renewable infrastructure. I don't know the answer to the question. Um, I, I like the idea. And, and, and I'm not sure if there's a piece of that in the Build Back Better legislation, because we haven't seen the final legislation yet. I mean, the, the House and Senate and the, and the White House are all still working this stuff out about you know, what's going to go the into the so-called compromise bill. bill with the so-called problem solvers and what's going to go into the big bill that's going to be passed by reconciliation. So I, I don't think anybody knows at this point, including, you know, uh, including the people in the White House. But I would be suspicious that a carbon tax could, well, maybe, I mean, you know, the whole point of reconciliation, budget reconciliation, is if it, if it influences government revenue, with a few exceptions, it is vulnerable to being passed through reconciliation, or it can be passed through reconciliation. Yeah, I, I think a case could certainly be, I think a case could certainly be made that it would, that it could fit. I mean, even if uh, you know it, it would get kicked out, it seems like it'd be a worth a worthwhile effort for us to call our congressmen about. And you prefer a cap and trade to a simple carbon tax. You write about that in the last hours of humanity. What what, yeah. what makes that preferable? And should we mention that to our congressmen? Yeah, I, you know, I wrote that book a number of years ago. I think, frankly, now the at at that point in time. I, I don't know if the idea of a carbon tax with a uh, a fee and rebate, it's called, program, was well developed. And I frankly no. don't recall if, if that's in that book. But that, I think, is probably the best way to do it, which is where you, you tax carbon, and then the people who would be hurt by that tax, which would be basically working people who are still driving cars that are running fossil fuels, get a rebate, basically, that makes them whole, so they're not hurt by it but all across all the systems um, from manufacturing cars and uh, in building highways and, and uh, you know, basically the entire infrastructure of the country is incentivized to move away from carbon, to move off a carbon economy. And uh, well, I would, I would, uh, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I would certainly love to see a, a tweet from you to the effect of, you know, call your congressman and say we want to include a carbon tax in the next budget reconciliation bill. Because it, it seems like it would be something that would 
be that fit the parameters is from what I know about it. Yeah. I, and we need one. Again, same here, but it's all it all has to be run past the Senate parliamentarian. <laughs> Brian, thank you for the call. Yeah. Tax and rebate or fee and rebate. It's, it's a good one. We'll do that. Again. Jeff in Portland. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? Hey, good morning, Tom. Speaking of history, I was listening to uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin tell a good FDR story recently. I'm paraphrasing, but she said after FDR won the presidency in 1932, someone told him that if the New Deal, if his New Deal worked, he'd be known as the best president ever. But if it failed, he'd go down as the worst. And FDR supposedly replied, no, if it fails, I won't be remembered as the worst president. I'll be remembered as the last president. And, you know, Tom, this story, re- this story reflects FDR took the impending threat of oligarchy and fascism very seriously. And, you know, I-, I think Biden and Schumer need to recognize that this same scenario exists today as it did 90 years ago. And not only should they defend voting rights in the manner that you suggest, but, you know, they also need to deliver a reconciliation package that matches the size and scope of the New Deal in a green way, even if they don't want to call it the Green New Deal. You know, the climate breakdown, as you were riffing on, I mean, it's here now. And 95 percent of the West is in drought. And we lost over 700 people in Oregon, Washington, and B.C. from this heat wave a couple weeks ago. And as you suggest, how soon till our food chain is affected in a major way? So, you know, FDR got it. Do you think Schumer and Joe, President Biden get it like he did, Tom? We will find out in a couple of days. The rhetoric that I'm hearing from President Biden is that he gets it. The question is whether he is willing or able. I mean, it may be a case of Manchin and Cinema, and maybe a few other Democrats in the Senate are so captured by this no labels group that was you know, put together by these hedge fund billionaires that created the so-called problem solvers caucus that they're members of. You know, the question is, are they so captured by these billionaires that they are incapable of doing the people's business? And I don't know the answer to that question. I think that we will find out before, probably before September or October, because I don't think anything is going to get done after October. But, you know, you invoked FDR, Jeff. So here is your FDR quote for the day. This is FDR talking about the taxes that he had to raise in order to pay for the New Deal. A number of my friends who belong in the very high upper bracket have suggested to me on several occasions of late, that if I am re-elected president, they will have to move to some other nation because of high taxes here. Now, I will miss them very much. (laughs) And the people applauded like crazy. Jeff, thank you. All right, thank you, Tom. Thanks for the call, good talking with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great by Professor Harvey J. Kay, who's a professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. This is from the introduction, page one. We need to remember, we need to remember what conservatives have never wanted us to remember and what liberals have all too often forgotten. Now, after more than 30 years of subordinating the public good to corporate priorities and private greed, of subjecting ourselves to widening inequality and intensifying insecurities, and of denying our democratic impulses and yearnings, we need to remember. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who rescued the United States from the economic destruction of the Great Depression and defended it against fascism and imperialism in the Second World War. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who not only saved the nation from economic ruin and political oblivion, but also turned it into the strongest and most prosperous country on earth. And most of all, we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who accomplished all that in the face of powerful, conservative, reactionary, and corporate opposition, and despite all their own faults and failings by making America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. Now, when all they fought for is under siege, and we too find ourselves confronting crises and forces that threaten the nation and all that it stands for, now we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the most progressive generation in American history. We are the children of the men and women who articulated, fought for, and endowed us with the promise of the four freedoms. On the afternoon of January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt went up to Capitol Hill to deliver his annual message to Congress. Just weeks earlier, he had defeated the Republican Wendell Wilkie at the polls and won re-election to an unprecedented third term. But Roosevelt now faced a far greater challenge, one even more daunting than those he confronted in his first and second terms. Still stalked by the Great Depression, the United States was also increasingly threatened by the Axis power, Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy, Imperial Japan. And with war already raging East and West, Americans had yet to agree about how to respond to the danger. The president, however, did not falter. He not only proceeded to propose measures to address the emergency, he gave dramatic new meaning to all men are created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, the people of the United States, a new birth of freedom and government of the people, by the people, and for the people. FDR knew about crises. But he knew as well what Americans could accomplish even in the darkest of times. Born in 1882, he had grown up privileged, the son of New York Hudson River Gentry. Yet long before becoming president, he had suffered serious defeats and setbacks, none more devastating than contracting polio in 1921 at the age of 39. The disease left him permanently unable to stand up or walk without assistance. However, supported by his wife Eleanor and other family members and friends, he had risen above the paralysis to become the most dynamic political figure in the United States. Moreover, his experiences and encounters in the course of doing so had reaffirmed and deepened his already powerful faith and confidence in God, in himself, and in his fellow citizens, all of which had enabled him, in the face of the worst economic and social catastrophe in the nation's history, to defiantly state that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and then go on to proclaim this generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. Armed with this faith and confidence and propelled by the popular energies that his words and elections elicited, he determinedly pursued the initiatives of relief, recovery, reconstruction, and reform known as the New Deal. Together, president and people severely tested each other, made mistakes and regrettable compromises, and suffered defeats and disappointments. Nevertheless, challenging each other to live up to their finest ideals, Roosevelt and his fellow citizens advanced them further than either had expected or even imagined possible. Confronting fierce, conservative, reactionary, and corporate opposition, they not only rejected authoritarianism, but also redeemed the nation's historic purpose and promise by initiating revolutionary changes in American government and public life and radically extending American freedom, equality, and democracy. They subjected big business to public account and regulation, empowered the federal government to address the needs of working people, mobilized and organized labor unions, fought for their rights, broadened and leveled the we and we the people, 
established a social security system, expanded the nation's public infrastructure, improved the environment, cultivated the arts, and refashioned popular culture. And while much remained to be done, imbued themselves with fresh democratic convictions, hopes, and aspirations. Danny, before the American people and their assembled representatives that early January day, the president surely believed their rendezvous with destiny had come. He told them straightforwardly that Americans were now confronting a moment unprecedented in the history of the United States. A moment unprecedented because never before had American security been as seriously threatened from without. And he refused to appease those who threatened our nation's safety. The book is The Fight for the Four Freedoms by Harvey King. Gerald in Abbeville, Louisiana. Hey, Gerald, what's on your mind today? Hey, how you doing, sir? Uh, I just want to say that uh, I don't disagree with climate change, but I think there's maybe nothing we can really do about it. Because I look at history as a, like, as far as the, the ending of the Roman Empire, you know, you had a real dark period that, ha- that happened and crops died uh, widely across Europe. And that was one of the factors that is believed that caused the end of the Roman Empire. But then right after that, you had a real warm period where in England they were growing uh really good wine and then that had that warm period that's all true Gerald. The, uh, they started yeah, you're talking about the, the, the little uh, dreas uh, the you know the little ice age and the and the and there was a warming period but see the thing is and and what the people who are informing you about this jared i guarantee you have not told you is that those were local phenomena that when it got warmer in england it got cooler in argentina that when it got colder in france it got warmer in vancouver in british columbia those were all local phenomena caused by local changes and variations in weather that had to do with changes in the ocean currents or El Ninos and La Ninas or deforestation or wildfires. In one case, it was a volcano. None of those things affected the entire planet. None of them. Zero. But there it, have been no, no, conse- that, uh, no consequential changes in climate that affected the, the entire planet for at least... 15,000 years. And what we are experiencing now is climate change worldwide, entire planet-wide, and it is being driven by the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, period, full stop. This is not natural variation. There are obviously natural variation, you know, uh, patterns, oscillations, but they take place very slowly over long periods of time, and they are not the things that you're talking about. Those are just local weather phenomena, local changes. And yes, they, they have ruined civilizations. There are, there, there are communities, there are you know, ancient Pueblo uh, dwellers, you know, houses in, in uh, southeast New Mexico that, you know, from, from several thousand years ago where they had to just leave because the drought lasted for 20 years and, and if they, you know, the people who stayed died. That was weather. This is climate. They are different things. And the people who are out there pitching the idea that there's nothing to worry about, this is all normal, or gee, it's going to be a terrible thing, but this is all normal, are lying through their teeth, Gerald, and they're doing it because there are billions of dollars to be made with fossil fuels. And they're taking a small amount of that money, and they are financing the people who are pushing out this kind of propaganda. Gerald, i, I got to move along. Mike in Pleasanton, California. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind? Hey, how are you, Tom? Hey, uh, real quick, and I kind of feel like I'm beating my head against the wall here, but uh, maybe I'm not. Um, you know, we uh, the, the Republican states are passing all these uh, voter suppression laws, and the Democrats are trying to combat that with H.R. 1, but we're having problems in the Senate with that. And as awesome as it is, and it seemed pretty easy to me that uh, Democrat Joe Biden made Juneteenth a national holiday, which I think is awesome. But couldn't we make Election Day a national holiday? Wouldn't that help kind of combat some of the voter suppression? Uh, yeah, the legisla- legislation to do that has been introduced into Congress dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times. I don't, you know, going way, well, way back, but dozens of times in my lifetime, certainly. It just never, never hits the threshold. We should try it again, I think. I, yeah. I you know, because I don't know about HR1, so we got to do whatever little bit we can, to, you know. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm hey, with you. I, I appreciate your time, Tom. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Robert in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Hey, Robert, what's up? As far as the uh, vaccination rates and ending the pandemic, I think it's pretty simple. Pay people to get vaccinated. Pay them up front. Have money at the injection station. Even the most diehard. <laughs> Here's a hundred bucks. What's it? You know, yeah, whatever. I, I mean, I mean, 
We, we just gave a million dollars to a college student here in uh, Oregon. She won the lottery. We had a lottery for you know people who were vaccinated that week and she or that, that month or whatever it was, and she won a million bucks. It's a big deal. But I, it doesn't seem to be pushing people into the vaccine stations. From my personal experience, extreme right wing, listen to Tucker Carlson type people, they will take free money if it helps them, no matter how much they complain about it, yeah. about other people. It would so. be interesting, Robert, to do to do some you know, in-depth polling on this and find out how much money it would take to cause somebody who's, you know, uh, I'm guessing probably at least half of these people are only marginally anti-vaxxers. They're not, you know, deeply steeped in the BS around this stuff. You know, what's it going to take to get there? I think $1,000 would push people over the edge. Oh, I think $1,000 would too. That could be a lot of money. That could be an awful lot of money. Anyhow, I got to run. Robert, thank you for the call. Gary in Naples. Gary, you got a quick one? Yes. Hello, Tom. Thank you. You should call out the ex-president. Great people stormed the Capitol. But I want to close the show with an FDR quote, and i got to hurry, I know. Here's what he said. You are just an extra in everyone's play. Huh. What does that mean? I, well, it means that Franklin Delano Roosevelt said it, and I think... Frankly, I pay attention to it. <laughs> okay, if he said it, it's got to be good. I, I, I'm wondering who the who is, who the you is that he was speaking to. Uh, fascinating. Thank you, Gary. It's always nice to hear from you. And we'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, have a great afternoon. Get a couple thousand steps in today. It keeps you healthy. It keeps your brain working. It, you know, it, it's like it's good stuff. And, of course, get involved in politics. Call your local Democratic Party today and say, I want to volunteer. Check out Indivisible.org or one of the other great organizations out there. Tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 